My name is California. My name is Forrest. And my name is Go. And, and this, this is Here We Sit. Yeah, last week we talked about sitting in a world of pain. And we were really just responding to what was alive for us in the moment. With the pandemic and what that's bringing up and then with the police brutality that's just like really front and center right now. Um, and so today, part two, we will be talking about the world of pain that we're sitting in and what triggers it brings up in us and how we're coping with that. And even how things have shifted now in this context, where we're right smack dab and they, what, the highest number of COVID cases in the States. Um, the uprisings are still happening, but not as front to center as they were when we previously recorded. So how are those shifts um, and is, how is this transition affecting us, impacting us now? I have a story. Yesterday I went to the chiropractor and two things happened. When I was at the chiropractor, I saw People Magazine. I hadn't been watching the news or anything for a while. And I had watched part of Hamilton and then I quit watching it because I said, oh, this is just about, you know, the music is nice and everything, but I know how it ends. You know, black people are still slaves and the country is, has begun. And I quit watching it. And then yesterday at the um, chiropractor, I saw People Magazine sitting and it said something about tragedy. And it was about the death, I think, of one of the Broadway actors in Hamilton. I think it was the guy who played Hamilton. No. It wasn't? No. Who was it? Very much still alive. No, I'm just saying I know it wasn't him because I followed him on Twitter and he's okay. still tweeting. <laughs> he's still tweeting and he's tweeting from this side of the veil, so he's still alive. So I don't know who it was, but it really, I felt frightened and like um, I didn't have any control. I didn't have a whole lot of control over my life, of my life mm. which I usually don't, but I have this illusion that I have control over my life and then I was walking and I forgot to pee while I was at the chiropractor and I couldn't find a place to pee and I went and bought some wipes and I went into Safeway and I found a place to pee and I wiped everything off and then I had to get home without getting on the 12 bus because we have this rule and so I used Gig and Gig took me into Piedmont and Piedmont is a little city suburb within the city of Oakland, where the price of everything I might, like the price of all of the real estate might triple or quadruple. And, every, and there's birds singing and there's green lawns, there's lots of whiteness. And the person who used the gig car before me parked it in the garage. So I'm walking back and forth on the street in Piedmont and I'm looking at my um, GPS and I'm looking at the car and I finally call the company and while I'm sitting there talking to the person on the company this guy white guy jogs toward me this nice little deer like jog and then he sees me and he turns around and he starts jogging the other way and then he starts jogging in place and then he turns around and he starts jogging toward me and then he starts jogging in place it was a narrow road and then there's this little like 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 cliff at the end to, it's, it's above the street and so he looks around and he jogs out into the street and around me and I couldn't decide 
if he was avoiding, I know, well, I'm black and I live here. So I assume that he's like doing that because I'm black. And now that everybody is awake to what is a little bit of what it's like to be black, I hope that everybody isn't saying, oh, she's just paranoid. It's because of COVID-19. Even if it was because of COVID-19, my paranoia is valid. So um, I was thinking about how that probably will not end in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. And I was also thinking about how I had this couple that lived um, across the hall from me when I lived someplace else. And it was a black and a white man. And the white man came up to me one day, story's almost over. And he goes, you know, once I had to cross the street to mail a letter, a letter and this black woman goes, oh, you're just crossing the street to avoid me. And I was thinking, well, I didn't say anything to him because it would have been a long discussion that might have lasted for days. And I had a feeling that he did it with his partner a lot. And then um, he told me that when he's with his partner, people look at his partner and his partner go, they're staring at me because I'm black. And he says, no, they're staring at you because you're handsome. And his partner looked okay, but I wouldn't stare at him for being handsome. And um, I just want to, I guess I'm saying it because there might be white people listening who I finally have their attention. And they might have this inkling that even if it is paranoia, it's, it's, it's justified. And um, it makes it a little bit easier now that we're all on the same page and have the shared reality, kind of, sort of, that is kind of not, that's kind of bleeped up to be black in America in 2020. That's where I am. Mm -hmm. I was reading about toxic positivity the other day. It made me think of that comment about that couple being like, no, you're just handsome, but it's actually like emotionally abusive and gaslighting, even though it's not intentional or even conscious, but yeah, I think, well, in my experience being a white person, <laughs> um, confrontation is so difficult because there's this like level of comfort that you are like born into, like the world is designed for you and your skin color. So to get confronted even in the slightest way is like, it's like you disassociate or something. Um, and that's actually how spiritual practice comes in handy for me. Because if I catch myself um, trying to run away from that discomfort, I, my spiritual practice is to like lean into it a little bit more and be grounded while I'm doing that so I'm not like losing my mind. Um, Does it actually feel like you're losing your mind when you're confronted with something that's uncomfortable? Does it feel that painful? I mean, up to this point it hasn't yet. But I will say that like I haven't, the, okay, so I had a strong spiritual practice and then I started anti-racism work. So I don't know how it would be if it was the other way around. Like to me, they're one and the same um, from my perspective. Um, yeah, because I, I mean, 
it's hard to explain. I feel like you need to have a sense of purpose in what you're doing. Um, and when you're just like not consciously aware of how you impact the ecosystem around you, whether it's people or animals or the planet, like that to me is the spiritual component, like recognizing the interconnectedness. And I think it's been, um, I think it's pop culture in this country to not be consciously aware of how you impact the people around you in the ecosystem. So it's just easier to be like, oh, no, that's not true. Even though you're like not consciously aware you're doing that, you're just programmed. You're running on this program. That's like so interesting for me to hear because like my journey has been learning how to do more of that um, because I am hyper aware of how I'm perceived in any space I walk into. So much so that I disassociate from myself because and am, un, am unable to track how I'm feeling in any given moment. And being in this space, um, intensifying my own spiritual practice, has been learning how to be aware of myself. Because there's been, there were literally times in college where I'd be sitting there and I'd be upset because I'm here like, why can't I feel anything? Why do I feel so numb? Like, I don't know how I feel right now because I can't feel anything. Because for 20 years of my life, it's been, how are the people feeling? Now, adjust to that. Contort yourself to make them feel as comfortable as possible, regardless of how I was feeling on the inside. And thinking now, I'm like, okay, was the fact that I was numb my body's way of, like, protecting myself? Because, like, this is unnatural. This is so painful. Like... Maybe even like a state of shock, a state of shock even potentially. I don't know. So it's like, how do we exchange? Like, I'll take more of what you have. <laughs> I'll give you some of this, and we like meet in the middle. Um, so yeah, that's just that's just really interesting to hear. Cause like that's you can exist like that in the world. <laughs> I didn't know that was possible. Or just not exist in a way where you just don't want to feel anything except niceness. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. Like, I was telling my friends, my other friends the other day, how, like, I don't know how to be in public, and they see someone approaching me and then not smile. Mm. Like, I don't know how to have a bleak face, you know? Um, I don't know how to look, allow myself to be perceived as anything. excuse me besides like nice or welcoming um and that's the shield i wear and i've learned how to wear and that shield is exhausting (laughs) um to where i don't have the energy that wear that shield anymore but the thing is it's been so programmed into my existence my way of being that even now when i am tired all the time it still comes up i'm just like what the (laughs) stop it so you're saying that when you're on the street, you smile so much that everybody smiles back at you? Yeah. Wow. I, when I was a, I grew up in Oakland and it may have something to do with that, but um, I don't even know if I want to talk about this. I think I might have talk, talked about it before, mm-hmm. about the talk that I got when I was 12 from my mom. I don't know. Mm. So I know that later generations um, have people that are now 
in their 20s or 30s talk about how they go on those dating sites. They date all these white men. And there was this play called Black Virgins Are Not Meant for White Hipsters or something like that. She lost her virginity to a white person. And um, I'm not saying that I haven't dated around, but I'm saying that I got this talk when I was 12 from my mom. Um, who said, and my mom was not what I would call a paragon of emotional stability. Mm. And she said that if I am ever, in the first place, she didn't ever want me to date a white person. And if I ever did, if I ever got raped, you have to maim him so he doesn't do that to the next black woman. That's mm. your only way out. And it may have been true um, uh, that mindset may have been true in a certain generation because I know a lot of white people think have this perception of black women like we're kind of dangerous there's a lot of perceptions that are kind of screwed up but I remember when I was a teenager me and my friends used to have mean faces and I, um, I, I think it was not me I think that a lot of black women just to everybody when you're 14, you know, you're just like preyed upon mm. by everybody. I was old as fuck. Oops. <laughs> I was so old. It was like two years ago when some white guy leaned over and rolled down the window and looked at me and I wanted to just grab him, pull him out. I was wearing hiking boots for bleep's sake, you know, but I had on a short skirt and tights or something. It was it was nothing. And he thought that I he, my body was for sale and I was in downtown Oakland. Mm. And I just wanted to just start I wanted to take a bat and start beating him. But you know, I couldn't without getting buried down the jail. Where was I going with this? So your mom told you this when you were fourteen? Twelve probably. When you were twelve? And so that's why I never had the happy face walking around. Mm. And um she both of her and my best friend's moms, our moms were both from the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. And it might have been, I don't know what it's like to have a black mom from America, but I do know from North America, but I do know what it was like to have a black mom from the Caribbean. And Melody, I don't, I don't mention her name, Melody, whose mom was from the Caribbean, was the same mean-faced person that I was when we would walk. But we were 14. We were going to downtown Oakland by ourselves, you know, 12. We were on the bus. And I think that I look at little white girls and I just know that they're just from a different planet than me. They're, you know, they have the luxury of such of innocence and assuming that they are protected by somebody. And I never had that. She said, you have to do it yourself because no, nobody will ever protect you against white male aggression or white aggression. It knows white male sexual aggression. Hmm. And that's the talk that I got. And that's why people don't smile at me. When I walk down the street, I don't engage with people so that they'll be looking at me and smiling. I'm, I try to take it off the mean face, but I think I still have it. You know, because nobody, um, 
Yeah, I don't know how much of, I know that there might be a certain amount of fear that my mean face elicits from white people. And I know that it isn't from living in a vacuum, but I just wasn't born a mean person. Mm -hmm. So, um, I always have these imaginary conversations when people do things that seem like microaggressions. So when the guy, and, and he's turning around and he's doing this little running in place dance, I'm like, you're, I think I said to myself, you just remember that you're supposed to be nice to me. <laughs> there you go, you're doing that way. Now you're going, what do I do? What do I do? <laughs> what will you do? What will you do? You're supposed to at least pretend you're not afraid of me. <laughs> and then he runs out to the street and then the little conversation in my head, you know, ceases. But I always have those. And it's probably because I started reading when I was young. And so I have the little color commentary going on in my mind. <laughs> so I'm just wondering, like, that could be a whole series. Like, black people have conversations with, like, with, like tired white folks. Cause like you know when you're you're physically exhausted, it's harder to like put up a face or to exude more energy than what's necessary. So it's like I wonder if he just like ran up this big hill. You know what I'm saying? There like, was no hill. Well, he we don't know how long he was running. Like you know what I'm saying? So maybe that was like mile seven, and he's like, I just want to get home and have some water. And he went, Oh, I'm not. What? He kind of short-circuited or something. Like, I can see the short-circuit, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just didn't know. I, I just have to, because we're in America, I have to assume that short-circuit had to do with my skin color. Mm -hmm. There was um, something <laughs> that I heard from Reverend Andriette. I'll give her credit because it was, it was it just, I was just snapping all over the place. I was at Zoom Church. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Zoom Church. This... Um, Sunday, and she she's always talking about freedom, power, privilege, ever since um, George Floyd. And this Sunday, she said that um, she when she sees white people, when she knows that white people don't understand the history of how we got here or why we are the way we are or who we are, or why they don't get us. She remembers her favorite movie, and this isn't me, this is Reverend Andriette. Mm -hmm. um, now I forgot the name. I saw that coming. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you got it. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. She said it. It's like you go, you wake up one day and you don't remember your history with the, that person that you've fallen in love with so that you don't have to feel the pain of a broken heart. And that was the whole premise of the movie. They just kept going back and she says that whiteness is kind of sort of like that in this country, except it's not, you know, it's the society, the society that does it. And um, Forrest is nodding his head. Yeah. Do you think it's perfect sunshine? Yeah, yeah. I, it's like at a systematic level and then it's at an individual level. Because, like, ignorance is intentionally um, 
created in the schooling systems. Like if a black person has to learn their own history outside of the public education system, how are white people going to be incentivized to learn that, you know? Like it takes a lot of time, it takes energy, you have to be confronted with some hard truths. And it's not like you're learning, well I mean I guess it is everyone's history, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But it, yeah, yeah, so there's like a systematic ignorance that is fabricated by design. And then because you're ignorant as a white person, you don't even understand the systematic reasons why it makes you feel so uncomfortable to be confronted by these tiny little things in your day. Like, oh no, it's just because he's handsome. But like, where does that even stem from? There's this huge disconnect. It's like living in delusion because you just have a lack of information. And then it actually makes you a little bit like you're living in an alternate reality, you know, because you don't have all the information in your head. It's exactly that. So what do you do with the cognitive dissonance of not having all the information in your head? <sighs> That's a million dollar question. Because like you as someone who grew up in the Midwest <laughs> and who has changed like so much from when you were in the Midwest, the Midwest to like where you are now, like what was that? What was that adjustment like for you? What was that growth, that journey like for you? But what is it, or what, uh, we're bombarding, bombarding. <laughs> What's it feel like to know that there's a gap between you and reality? Mm. I've always wanted to know that. It's an awful feeling. It's like, like you've been drinking the apple juice, you know, or drinking the Kool-Aid or whatever, and then one day you wake up and you're like, wait a minute, I've been fed lies my entire life? Like, it's an awful feeling. Yeah, and like, if I wasn't queer and trans, I don't know if I would have like been down this path that I'm at right now. Like I had to experience some form of marginalization from a colonial lens because like the colonizers came and they were like, oh, let's eliminate gender, like the third gender, like, you know, let's all live in black and white now, like only the binary exists. And like, you're not allowed to love people in this way. You only have to love them in this way. Mm. Otherwise, you're not a part of us. Like you can't sit with us. So. Yeah, I'm grateful for those experiences. Um, but people who are still drinking the Kool-Aid, like how do you invite them in to like a different drink? Like a little taste of reality. I mean, I feel like COVID is forcing people to do that now and many people are not responding well, but a lot are also trying to, you know, drink actual water instead of the sugary, non-nutritious substance, you know, and it is a process. Um, COVID, yeah, every, I think COVID and, like you're in the middle of COVID and, you, and then you're forced to look at that video mm -hmm. and then just, you're, all of a sudden you're awake. Yeah. You have to sit with it. You can't go anywhere. You have to sit in your home and grapple with what, what that video tells you or what that video shows you about where you were living or the world that you were living in and the reality of the world that everyone else is living in. Yeah. Yeah, because like, um, as a white person who is committed to like anti-racism work, I, like I'm part of this uh, group of white queer folks that where we do like anti-racism work together every month. And one of the things that we learn there is it's a very isolating road to go down as a white person because 
you're basically like um, denying this membership to this elite kind of status in a way. Like definitely I still receive privilege because that's out of my control. But to be like, actually, no, I don't want that. And I'm going to like look at this and I'm going to check it and I'm going to call it out when I see it. That like people do not like that. <laughs> White people do not like that. If you have a like a true ally who's like calling out injustice in the workplace especially your coworkers are not going to like you like you are giving up your status essentially in a way if you use your voice properly so to have um and you're also obviously like i'm i can't be like i'm not a black person so I, i'm not um i don't have solidarity there you know what I mean? or like maybe not solidarity is the word but I'm not in that community per se. I can be an ally as much as I like try to be, you know, like, but I'm, I'm like renunciating. Yeah. Does that make sense? I'm like kind of in between both. So for me to have other white people who are also doing anti-racism work, like that's actually my real community. Cause we're like, fuck colonization. I'm like, damn, I said the F word. You said the D word too. <laughs> okay, carry on. <laughs> yeah. We're like, we're actively like decolonizing our minds together um and there's a lot of white people that i love deeply who don't understand that because they're living in this ignorance they can't understand the deeply rooted history of like how things are right now and like i don't even pretend like i can understand it fully i'm constantly trying to understand it so are the even after even right now in july of 2020 they still don't understand it yeah, I mean, a lot of my family lives in Missouri. A lot of them live in rural areas. Um, and like my grandpa, for example, love that man. He's a lovely human. He's also racist. Um, and like, I don't know if he would identify as racist, but he posts some racist shit on... Yeah. He posts some racist things on Facebook, like like in response to everything that's going on. He posted a video, I can't remember her name, but she's like a black conservative woman. Candace. That's it. Cray cray. <laughs> he, he posted her on Facebook. And like, I've, I've heard this argument when Mike Brown got murdered by the police, that happened really close to where I live, where I grew up in the Midwest in Missouri. And like all of my family had strong opinions about that too. And it's like the same as how they thinking are thinking now even though it's like coming more the truth is coming to light more and more they're still living in that place why did he have to be so tall if he, he was scared he should have sold those cigarettes if he didn't want to get shot and killed yeah yeah i was i often wonder what candace's parents think of her you know sit down <laughs> just don't say nothing don't say nothing <laughs> you know you're our daughter, so you can sit there and not yeah. say nothing. That's what I imagine I would do if, if I had a kid like that. I mean, I don't know if this compares at all. So, like, I might be totally out of line here, but I can speak to my experience being a, like, newly out queer person and trying to assimilate as much as possible because I didn't want to ruffle any feathers. I wanted to be included. I wanted to... I didn't want to be rejected. So... I was like living a very heteronormative life in the way I was living, like in the way I did relationships and doing the nine to five and having a dog and a house and all that stuff. Like there's nothing wrong with that, but 
I was living such a programmed way of living and um, kind of with this philosophy of like, oh yeah, I'm gay, but I'm just like you, mm. you know? So even though I was like technically out, I was still living in shame and I wasn't even consciously aware of it. But if you look at me now, <laughs> like I'm super queer and I say queer in like a cultural sense of like deviating from the norm, I suppose that's how I would call it. And I don't think you have to be um, sexually queer to be queer. I think you could be queer just because you deviate from like mainstream society. That's how I see it. So when I see people like assimilating like that in a harmful way to themselves, I mean, see, I don't know if this is my place to say it, so I feel really hesitant to say that. The way that she assimilates feels self-destructive. It's hard to watch for me. I, I, I relate back to when I was like in that place of being like, I'm just like you, you know? Like, it seems like more, I don't know, like, it seems like she's hell-bent hell bent on killing herself. Like, like, she's, like, there's, like, she's going down this road, the bridge is out, and somebody said, the bridge is out. She goes, I see it, and she just keeps going, you know, because there's got to be some kind of insanity at some point. No, there's no way she feels safe. There's no way she has a real sense of safety, because, like, she's left the ship, Oh, I'm sure if I want to use that as analogy. But like the path she has chosen, the structure she is now choosing to build her platform is so unstable. Like it's it only is there as long as you continue to do this dance. As long as you continue to say the words that make those white people feel good about themselves, allow them to continue to live in this version of reality, which is not real. Um, so it's all just flimsy. And the thing is, like, there was that other, those other two, like, Diamond and something, those two Black women that were doing this, a similar dance and jive on Fox TV, and then were fired because they said something about, like, the George Floyd murder or something. Or that could be wrong, but they, they were fired for some reason because they said a thing that was not enough in alignment with that, what, that type of white cause um, and really was in alignment with <clears throat> the black causes either so they're just in this very weird space where like they weren't being self-destructive enough um to appease the white folks they were working for so i'm just like there's no way you can feel safe like i, I don't know how you are well like i i just it's hard i can't even watch her videos because i'm just here like i also see like a version of a younger a younger me where i was just trying and i grew up in like a liberal area in California. Like I wasn't I was in California, right? I was in like the divine, the Mecca, the utopia of America. But even still, right, I still felt like I had to do a certain type of dance. I had to do a lot of dissociating from myself. I had to do, had to do a lot of reject rejecting of any stereotype that coded me as black. Right. I had I had to be the Oreo to survive. But then I also had to go home and then be very proud to be black and just like kind of like just it's a very uncomfortable disturbing dance to do and so whenever i see someone doing that same thing when i feel like you would have grown out of it at this point like as i have been lucky enough to do which is just very hard and sad to watch um yeah i'm just like there's no way you can feel safe like there's no way you can have trust and be vulnerable because i'm like how do you actually feel yeah. Because there's no way you actually feel like that. 
Like, I refuse to believe you actually feel like that when you go home, you know? Because I feel like you have, you've now committed. You've been like, okay, being Black in this world is too hard. It's too uncomfortable. It's too painful. So let me try and, and pledge allegiance to this flag, to these people. Um, and maybe that then I'll be safe, right? Like, this, the parents that say, just dress well. If they, they, they come and approach you, just give them your card, you know, do whatever, and then you'll be safe. And like that still doesn't work. So instead, let me be loud and let me be anti-black as a black woman. Let me like be their token, and maybe and I'm this one token. I'm then valuable. Like I can I can be that calling card for them. But even it's just yeah, it's hard. It's so hard to be black, man. It's so hard. It's so hard. It's so hard. And we've tried so many different ways to survive and to educate. There's we've used the love. We've used the aggression. We've, we've, it's just, it's exhausting. And yet we still have hope. <laughs> like, I don't know how you look at black people and then look down on them. Cause I'm here like, this is like, we're so, I'm going to cuss. We're so fucking resilient. Like we're so fucking powerful. Like, maybe that's the scary thing. It's like, we have tried to tear you guys down, literally destroy you for like hundreds of years and yet here you still have the nerve to be as proud as you are to love yourself as much as you do to be of the American culture as much as you try and to steal it and put a Kardashian face on it you are our culture you are what makes America so great like it's 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 um you know mental health is important you know mental health care is very important it's just it's wild yeah, I think as as far as like oppression dynamics go, physical abuse is like the obvious form of oppression. Like, yeah, we see police brutality and how it's very racialized and it's designed like that. But then the the real tool behind that though is like the emotional impact that has on people mm-hmm. and the emotional like all the other things. Like you're saying, it's so exhausting. Mm-hmm. Like that's the real powerful tool of oppression and like if the oppressor sees that they cannot break your spirit yeah they're gonna be scared mm-hmm. black people are resilient as fuck and like it's <laughs> <laughs> my t-shirt but however however when we get in beauty shops we saying man white people are crazy I'm glad I'm not white <laughs> and there is something to having your eyes open. (laughs) We're cutting this part out. (laughs) I think that, well, I'll I'll go back to the allegory, or is it the metaphor? I'll go back to the movie, Eternal Sunshine, Eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Mm-hmm. They, you know, I'd rather be the person that is just waking up every day and looking at the heartbreak than the person that has have, had their mind cleaned out mm-hmm. by the doctor that wanted to spare the couple the, um, the heartbreak, mm-hmm. the, the, the reality of living with heartbreak. I'd rather be the person that's just saying, damn, that didn't work. Mm-hmm. And so... I don't think that I, I mean, like I'm tired, but it's a different, it's a kind of tired that I can step back 
and say, you know, I chose an incarnation where I'm going to live with my eyes open and I'm going to tell a new story and I'm going to try to keep the whole human race from just careening down that road where the bridge is out. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's, you know, I call that a privilege. Yeah, they say ignorance is bliss. The bridge is out, y'all. Ignorance ain't bliss. <laughs> Don't go that way. Yeah, but it's like, I mean, f from my perspective, the people living in ignorance, including myself, like coming out of ignorance every day, that to me feels like a truly joyful life. Because like, if you can't be with the full spectrum of emotions, including the uncomfortable ones, like how alive are you? Mm. You know, like how deeply can you feel joy if you're blocking yourself from pain? Like what else are you blocking yourself from? Mm. And like, like how you were talking about um, resilience and joy, like, and yeah, just what both of you are saying, I'm like, yeah, you're, you're like truly living, even though it's painful to be awake, like, you're truly alive. There's so many people that are just like asleep and they're on autopilot. Like, I feel like pain in my body when I think about what that must be like, because you're unable to experience like what you're saying, the full breath of human experience. Like, here we came, we made the society, we made this box. It's like, we all know that, you know, everything is a spectrum. But then y'all came and chose a box and put it right smack dab in the middle. Where we all had to like reach and contort ourselves to try and make our way into the box, but no one actually is the box, right? And that just, ugh, you know, just ugh. And yeah, then you end up being ill-equipped to handle things like someone telling you to put your dog on a leash. Without strangling the poor dog. Without strangling the poor dog. That's the true pain. Right. Like, it's just... It's it, it, it's such a... a, a trigger, um, uh, crossword warning. It's such a mindfuck to, like, sit here and see, like, yeah, I don't want to be anything but what I am. Um, knowing how this world treats people that are this embodiment. Because I see how much you are, in fact, suffering. Like the suffering that I'm under is not is not in my nature, it's not in your nature, it's a choice that you are making, right? Because you are suffering. And like, it's just like a weird space to exist in. Um, but yeah, like California was saying, I, I don't wanna be anything else. Like I, I'd rather live with that heartbreak. I'd rather live with that, <laughs> with that mind fuck. Um, Cause, because I'm able to see it, I'm living it and I can see it, then you can try and find ways to heal it, right? But if you are still in it, there's no way you can look back because, you know, you're still in it. You can't look back and say, okay, now I have that 20-20 vision I'll be talking about. Now I was trying to diagnose the issue. It's like you, are you don't even know what the issue is because you are in it. You are experiencing it. You're living it. Um, so it's like who else but the oppressed are going to save all of us? We all need to stop stomping on us so we can try and help you guys out, but like... Alas, I think um, there. I think that I'm gonna sound like Oprah Winfrey, but I think that there's there's this law. There's everything happens for a reason. Is what she likes to say, mm -hmm. and then the evolution of humanity 
is so long and we don't know where it's going to end that we're just in this little sliver of it. And um, part, you know, how can I put this? We need to like make a little jump and maybe there's something because this time in history is so brief, there's something that we're going to get out of this that if it had gone an easier way for everybody, because I think that white people suffer. You know, white people came over here. The little bit of Hamilton that I saw, you know, is kind of range true with what I believe, that white people came over here and they had um, to form something called white people. So, like, right off, nobody's, you know, you're no longer English or anything. You're you're white. Mm. And whatever it is that was bugging you about your forefathers being um, like serfs or not nobility or whatever it is that you had done to you, it wasn't healed. And so, and there was something up with the whole human race when we came to this point in time. I'm just saying that if everything happens for a reason, we're going to survive this or not, but perhaps if we do, we're going to come out of it and not be, and have something more than um, who and what we were before we went into it. I don't know if that makes sense. Does that make sense? Like, we're just going to, there will be something about our nature that um, will be, It will equip us to, I don't know, somebody take it Are you saying that this is like an opportunity to disrupt the cycle of ancestral trauma? Like how people from Europe brought that trauma yes. over and then projected it onto other people and now it's yes. continuing? Yeah, and I believe, I'm not a historian, but I believe that what preceded this was like toxic, toxic, masculinity and um, the human race wasn't always talk you know toxically masculine we weren't always masculine to the point of toxicity because you know um, when we first evolved it just there we honored the feminine I don't know there's just some way that this spread around the globe, this toxic masculinity, and maybe it's, um, we are forced, one thing I believe is that we have to give up racism and toxic masculinity or perish as humans. And so that point of, of the, the point where we um, live on as humans or perish will um, if we live on we'll be will be healed of something and I don't know what kind of um, evolutionary jump we'll make um, but it will be societal I think because our whole existence has depended on human culture you know we weren't it's a myth to think that it's survival of the fittest you know 
humanity survived because we cooperated. Because look at us compared to elephants and tigers. We're kind of pathetic. You know, we had culture that told us which plants to eat, like, you know, that part of us that is in tune with a higher part of us told the shamans which plant to eat, where to go, you know. And so maybe we'll develop that part of ourselves and we'll, if we don't perish, you know, we'll be better for it. But who's to say? Because we won't see it in our lifetimes. Yeah. Toxic masculinity mistakes domination for power. And the reason it spreads so easily is because domina- that's domination's nature. It's like to conquer. Mm. There's a power dynamic implicitly. And like how you were saying about the boxes go, masculinity and femininity are just two more boxes that people made up. Mm-hmm. Like they're two components of humanity that we have categorized and we have extracted them the same way we extract oil from the earth. Mm-hmm. And we say, oh no, you're only allowed this box now because you were born with this set of genitals. Mm. And now you're allowed this box. And the problem with toxic masculinity is that if you're not performing within this box, you are not masculine. And so who are you at that point? Mm. So to a certain degree, your identity is tied into domination. And whether that's as subtle as like the power dynamic between you and your romantic partner, where you make all the money or you make more money, you know, it shows up in so many ways. But it also shows up in like white supremacy culture. There's this concept of domination. It's, it's all interconnected and it's like taking over the planet. And I think, I think power does not mean domination. I think it's something much more deep and meaningful than that. Like understanding your internal inherent worth as a living being that is a divine creation. I think true power is soft. Like, I don't have much to say on this. Just like, as you were speaking, just like, yeah, true power is not this hard aggressive show of like militaristic force which is what the state believes like i think true power is a very soft and subtle as you were saying forest thing um and so just i'm sitting here thinking about the shift that needs to take place but also how we're in the best place unfortunately that we've been to make that shift because like, at least in my lifetime, never before have so many of our collective wounds been on the surface. And never before have we all had the chance to sit and like view them. And not just view them like because we want to, but view them because we have to, because we can't go anywhere. Like you have to face all of this. How can I sit with this? And how do I remember that true power is soft? This is Here We Sit a project of the Mangalan Research Center for Buddhist Languages and its Mindful Living program. 
This podcast is host, produced, and edited by members of the 2020 Mindful Living cohort. Here we aim to cultivate a space for ourselves and our listeners to sit with questions and topics without necessarily having the answers.